0: Welcome to 4D, Deep Dive
1: into Degenerative Diseases.
0: Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations.
1: Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the AMPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Katie McGraw, a physical therapist, and I serve as chair of the DD I'm excited to be here today with Ann Kluse and Deb Kegelmeyer from The Ohio State University, where they are directors of the Mobility and Exercise in Neurodegenerative Disorders Research Lab, along with clinical work at the Huntington's Center of Excellence. Welcome, Deb and Ann.
0: Um, hello, I'm Ann Cloos and I'm excited to be here today with you, Katie. Um, I work at Ohio State University, um, teaching a lot in the neurologic curriculum, and I've also been working at the Huntington's Disease Clinic for quite a while at OSU's Center of Excellence.
2: Hi, I'm Deb Kegelmeyer, and thank you again for having me as well. I also teach in our neurologic content, and also teach in pathology and geriatrics, as well as my work in Huntington's disease and across multiple task force.
1: Well, it's so exciting to have you guys here today, in particular because of the recent paper that you were um, authors on, titled "Clinical Recommendations to Guide Physical Therapy Practice for Huntington's Disease." Um, It's such an important paper and such an important topic, and it's great to kind of celebrate it this month in particular for Huntington's Disease Awareness Month. So maybe to start, if you could give us some background information about how this paper came to be. Well, I'll
2: chime in. We um, both are members of uh, the Huntington Study Group here in America, as well as the European Huntington's Disease Network Physiotherapy Working Group. And in our work there, we were approached, along with um, multiple other members in that group, to come up with this um, systematic review and then the clinical practice guidelines in Huntington's disease.
1: And this systematic review, is that the paper from 2017?
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: And so is this a continuation of that work? Yes, it is. It is a continuation of that work.
0: Um... Basically, we took what we had found in the uh, systematic review and we thought, well, we really wanted to have something that would help clinicians to translate what was in that systematic review into actual practice. So, um, we decided we wanted to um, do do a clinical guidelines paper that was separate that would be more with action-type statements and giving, like, grades of recommendations. So clinicians had a better idea of what interventions would be best to um, do in their clinical practice.
1: And so to give a little more detail, what kind of results did you guys focus on for, this, for the clinical recommendations?
2: We started using the original clinical practice guidelines, which had come out back in around um, 2012 and 2013. And in those, they had come up with these areas um, uh, in the guidelines or practice areas, so starting out with aerobic exercise and then um, balance and gait and moving through those different categories. And so we started to look at those categories and see what kinds of uh, recommendations we could make in each category.
1: And did you guys include any additional evidence from the 2017 paper to the for this clinical guideline?
0: Yes, we did. Actually, um, we found um, six additional articles that we added on to the ones that we had in the original 2017 systematic review. Um, So we wanted to make sure that we were completely up to date as far as possible.
1: And how did the recommendations, if they did, did they change at all from the earlier paper?
2: I think one of the things we were able to do was go out and survey practicing clinicians and experts and get a better handle on some more of that qualitative information and then flesh out the guidelines a little bit more fully um, using that input, especially in areas like respiratory care and palliative and hospice and life care where there's so little evidence.
1: Yeah, it's nice that with the survey that you provided to these clinicians, they're the ones kind of on the front line doing the work. Um, but there there aren't a lot of clinics that see Huntington's disease because it's, it's a rare condition. And it's nice to get that input and be able to incorporate it in to kind of build both of the clinical expertise, but along with what the research is saying to develop such a kind of clinically minded paper like this Um, that really lets all clinicians, whether you have experience or not, know where to start. Um, I in particular liked at the end of your paper when you talked about what what clinicians can do, you know, to try to get expertise um, in this area that may not feel 100% comfortable.
0: Yes, I think you're really bringing up something important is that many, many therapists when they first have their, uh, a, a patient with Huntington's disease, they're often just um, really not sure exactly where where to go with the patient and um, so we're hoping that this will this document then will allow them to have a resource that they can go to say they're in their clinic they know they're having their first Huntington's patient they can look at that guideline and kind of from that be able to figure out you know what, what they maybe need to assess, and also what interventions might be the best to utilize.
1: So given some of the history with the research in Huntington's disease, I mean, it's really grown just in the past decade um, and kind of really informed or been really informed our clinical practice. Um, and it's the work that you both are doing, it's, it's so valuable. But maybe you could help us have some better insight into what are the areas of Huntington's research that really Still need some attention. Um, and what are some areas that have had you know fairly significant growth and understanding over the past decade?
2: I think that one of the things I was personally probably aware of, but still surprised by when we did this work was um, there's a fairly good body of research in aerobic exercise strengthening those kinds of areas. There was a decent amount of information on gait and training walking. But I was personally very surprised at how I think there were no studies, and Anne can correct me, but how few studies there were that actually had as a primary endpoint balance interventions. And with that being such a big problem in this population and a focus of our um, practice area, I was personally surprised by that.
1: Yeah, do you think that some of the recommendations from the paper that were deemed weaker are really more about representing? that, you know, the areas of research that still need to get done to understand things better.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, (laughs) definitely agree. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Within that, the body of literature with the balance, I mean, they just, there was no, no study that had made balance as one of the primary measures that they were looking at. And almost all the studies, there were like multiple other interventions. So you couldn't sort out what was actually bringing about any of the changes that they did find in the balance measures. So, you know, we need to do more targeted studies to actually look at, okay, what intervention specifically is it that, you know, can lead um, to the best or is it a combination?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we could kind of go through some of the um, action statements from the paper, so the first action statement was effectiveness of aerobic exercise paired with strengthening exercises in persons with HD. So what is it here that we should be taking away?
2: I think definitely we saw benefits. And, and something that was interesting was that they are able to tolerate this. And there, there was safety and feasibility in doing this. There were some challenges. If you read the details of the studies, you could see that many of the studies provided transportation um, or did things like that to get clients to come to the sessions. So we definitely have hurdles, some pretty big ones in getting people in for these kinds of interventions. And there was a wide variability in the level of the um, When you look at exercise intensity and and when you look at the recommendations for higher intensities, but in actuality, um, there was some difficulty getting people to those higher levels.
1: And do you have a sense of what was holding back that ability to achieve these higher levels?
2: I think it's a combination between fitness levels of individuals and then our ability in designing research studies and how to move and progress people through
1: to try to incrementally increase the intensity.
2: Yeah. And, and not having done those studies per se, I know that that was some of the issues were just even getting to that point. And then people don't, they don't like working that hard when you get up yeah. to 85 and 90. So some of it, some was a little bit of that, but I don't want to say that was all of it. I don't think we've had a chance to fully flesh that out.
1: hmm I was um, impressed by the frequency of these studies that they were exercising, you know, three or four times a week, which is a lot. And it's more than what's more what's typical based in a outpatient physical therapy clinic.
2: And I think when you see those, you'll note that they were primarily done in Europe. where they were either we had a lot of inpatient based rehabs, or again these studies where they were able to do transportation, or there was an excellent study on home exercise program.
1: Mm-hmm. And just to be sure, anything to add? Many of these you talk about the
0: compliance, like three, you know, doing three times a week. Too a lot of them were like supervised as well, so there was a therapist or someone who was like supervising the exercise, and they, you know, so they they had had some motivation from that aspect. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. You can't deny the power of being watched um, or just the power of having to leave your house and, you know, go to a clinic. There's, you know, there's a lot of results that just come from showing up.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: All right. Well, your second action item, or your sorry, your second action statement was regarding gate training. And so what should our listeners know about the findings there?
0: Um, with the gait training, again, we found that there was pretty, pretty strong evidence that if you do uh, like a very individualized, you know, one-on-one uh, gait training with a person with Huntington's, that it can be beneficial. And particularly in terms of the outcomes that showed changes, they were more in the areas of spatiotemporal, measures of gait, like, um, for instance, gait speed, which improving gait speed in people with Huntington's is, is a big, it it, it can really improve their quality of life because they tend to walk pretty slow. So if we can get their gait speed up, that's a good thing for them. Um, And, uh, and also in areas, um, for instance, like stride length. um, So taking bigger steps, you know, Helping to, which helps them to walk faster. Um, the the problems, though, although it does appear the individualized works. Um, you know, uh, it again there were uh, the frequencies, the intensities, the timing of these interventions were all really different. So there's a lot of questions about, you know, again, like we need to find out more about what is. You know, what are the best parameters for us to be doing this gait training
1: in? Yeah, was there variability even in terms of what these studies were doing in their interventions?
2: Well, we saw we had ones that focused
1: particularly on gait. Mm-hmm.
2: Almost always, one thing to point out, I guess, across these was that it was the ones that worked and where we saw benefit typically were one on one. And one on one with a physical therapist? With a physical therapist. And um, so I think that's was a take home for me. Um, the gate ones that worked, oh, they were focusing on walking faster, taking bigger strides. So it tended to be task specific.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'm thinking of it as more of a traditional kind of gate training with the physical therapists there, cueing different. Um, either strategies or trying to mm-hmm. kind of improve kinematics um, with yeah. different types of cues.
2: Yeah, or using some type of a modality to do that, and that carried across to balance. We saw a lot of functional, task-specific, and again, one-on-one with a the physical therapist um, with those. And and like Anne said, a lot of variability. So it's very difficult to say what would work as far as intensity, duration, those kinds of things. Okay.
0: For the balance exercises, one thing um, within the studies in which there were improvements in balance measures, they almost all had a component where they were actually doing balance exercises and they you know, described them specifically as being for balance. So it seems like this Uh, this concept of task specificity seems to, you know, go over from gait training to balance training. You have to have specific exercises addressing those um, tasks to get the benefit.
1: And are you guys aware if during their gait training, they were also focusing on that aerobic intensity? That depended on the study.
2: So we did see the gait training in, Several of the studies that were focused on aerobic, and then we were able to kind of separate out that gait aspect, and then there were some where that was not the aspect, and they were simply focused on gait, such as the home exercise program and some of those.
1: And were they, was the gait training performed on a treadmill, over ground, both?
2: There weren't any treadmill studies, but we're hoping to publish soon our very pilot
1: one. Oh, that's great. Uh-huh. It's nice to be able to talk about late breaking news.
2: Yeah, we hope it is. So we did. We did try to examine feasibility and safety of treadmill training with, with both clients with Huntington's disease and dementia, um, just to first explore whether we could even get them to go on the treadmill and work on those parameters there.
1: Hmm. And anything you can share at this point?
0: Um, well. Uh, according to our pilot study, we did find that um, individuals with Huntington's were able to um, walk on the treadmill. Um, they seemed to tolerate really well in terms of we were looking at their vital signs. They could all complete it. Um, what is interesting though is that, um, you know, we had intended to have them start out at like their comfortable speed on overground walking Mm -hmm. and we found that absolutely none of the individuals that we tested were able to start actually at that comfortable speed on the treadmill. Mm So, and only um, a few of them were actually able to even get to that comfortable speed by the end of the 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it seems as if um, there there definitely will need to be maybe a longer duration of training, you know, to get them up to, you know, maybe speeds on the treadmill that can, that can really, um, you know, uh, help with, with, um, increasing their pace.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I think that's an important point that someone's overground comfortable speed is not their treadmill comfortable speed. And for many patients, you know, at least when I'm in the clinic, I start people like 10 to 15% slower just as their starting point and just to see if they can keep up, if it doesn't make them uh, too fatigued too quickly um, across kind of several diagnoses. But it is surprising um, how tiring the pacing of the treadmill is um, for a lot of, a lot of patients. Well, thank you so much for sharing a little about your research ahead of publication. We always like to be on the cutting edge here at the degenerative disease SIG. Um, I'm going to jump back in and let's talk about the third action statement, the effectiveness of balance exercises. And Anne, you've kind of already given us a bit of a preview, um, but anything else that you guys would want our listeners to know?
0: Um, In terms of the balance exercises that they were describing, um, the the exercises varied. Um, Some of them were more like functional task kind of training, like sit to stand, um, transfers, um, you know, getting up and down from the floor. Um, And also then uh, they also included kind of your more standard type balance exercises like static and dynamic uh, exercises where you're also like changing the amount of sensory input, you know, visual somatosensory types of input um, to keep challenging. And I think that was one thing that I really noted is that you had to, you had to challenge the person. It had to be at a level where they were really feeling that this is, you know, this is not easy. (laughs) Um, So, and that's kind of in our um, action statement, that it needs to be at a moderate intensity, meaning that it has to be something that's challenging to the person.
1: And what kind of outcome measures do you guys use in your clinic at the Ohio State? Right now,
2: we've been using the functional gait assessment. We've also been using the Tinetti mobility assessment. Um, and we're finding value in both of those because they're kind of crossing different ends of the spectrum of the disease. We as a group, meaning our whole group of people that were in on this study, um, have been challenged at figuring out how to measure balance and don't feel happy with any of the measures. Mm-hmm. And we do, as a group, have a couple of studies out looking at outcome measures in Huntington's disease, and we've actually and we're getting ready to start prior to the pandemic, um, another balanced study trying to look across measures and figure out what would work best with Huntington's disease. So I have to say we, we look at things that challenge narrowing the base of support, um, those kinds of things, but we, we haven't really settled on a balanced measure.
1: No, I think it's an important point to... To highlight because as a clinician, and I'm sure other clinicians listening here, it's so hard to pick the right outcome measure um, and to assess what you wanted to assess and to be sensitive to any changes to help you understand if what you're working on or doing is really leading to positive changes. Um, and we've heard this talking to a few other people um, both in Huntington's and other degenerative disease diagnoses that there can be ceiling effects, floor effects, or, you know, you end up with kind of a negative trial because you, you just don't have that right outcome to really capture it. So I'm glad that you guys are out there trying to help figure it out for us so that, you know, we can kind of keep tracking our patients appropriately. All right. Number four for your action statements was the breathing exercises. So the respiratory, um, that you had mentioned earlier, anything, or what would you like our listeners to know here? What we
0: found, although the evidence is not very strong, um, there definitely is evidence that there may be a benefit to doing breathing exercises on a regular basis, as well as um, even doing some uh, inspiratory and expiratory resistive type um, breathing exercises. Um, And the outcomes that have improved uh, with these exercises are the respiratory muscle strength and also cough effectiveness. So um, this is something we know that as the disease progresses, it does really affect their um, breathing in terms of just the um, mechanics of it. And um, so it will, it, it, Appears as if if we you know institute some of these breathing exercises probably earlier when they're not having as many problems and trying to help them to maintain then a more you know functional normal breathing pattern even into the later stages of the disease because that's primarily where we're seeing a lot of people that are are there where they're having most of their problems.
1: Right. So being proactive and not waiting for the kind of the known problem to arise, but trying to institute some of these exercises earlier on to push out potentially the onset. Are there, are there researchers who are looking at or trying to study that type of model um, that being more proactive, like instituting kind of respiratory or balance or gait earlier on kind of recruiting people earlier on in the disease to understand how it, may or may not change the functional course?
2: I don't know that there's anyone looking early on, and um, but I do know that there's uh, some research that's been done, and she may follow up. Um, a person named Una Jones in the UK has looked at respiratory function in um, individuals with Huntington's disease and started that work. So specifically, she's been working in that area.
1: Awesome. And is there anyone, this is a, a bit off topic, but um, I think kind of we can layer it in, is talking about the aspects of motor learning kind of in early Huntington's disease versus later stages and how that may influence these recommendations or treatment approaches when you're looking at things like gait and balance and um, respiratory training?
0: Um, yeah, definitely. Um motor learning can be impacted, um, particularly as it, as the disease progresses. And, um, uh, they, although they continue, I mean, there's evidence that they do continue to, to be able to learn, um, mm-hmm. motor tasks, um, throughout their disease. But, um, I would say that, um, you may have to do a lot more. What we found is just because there's also the cognition that is changing at the same time that you end up having to do um, more cueing, um, you know, getting them uh, to attend to like, you know, specific cues so that it helps them to be able to do whatever their task is they want to do. Um, and um, that they might have to, You might have to break up if it's, if it's a very complex kind of a task, you might have to break it up into smaller pieces and try to, you know, get them to do each step by step, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. learning these steps and then maybe put it all together. But, um, it's not though that they cannot learn. It's just, it may be take, it may take them longer.
1: Mm -hmm, mm
0: And sequences particularly are are difficult to learn. And I can't think of any studies that have explicitly
2: looked at motor learning. But I know that when we're talking about study design, we're always talking about that. Um, There's a lot of conversations around it. And is it going to impact the study? In our study where we looked at Dance Dance Revolution, um, sequencing was a big issue. They had to follow sequences. Their ability to perform on Dance Dance Revolution was worse than mine, uh, which is (laughs) they really, really struggled with those sequences and making especially backward movements. And we see that we tried in one of our early studies to do the force square balance test and um, the one where you step in those sequences and found that we could not really use that because we had to literally walk them around in the sequence. Almost everyone in the study. So it's definitely an issue, but not one that's been looked at and really examined. There are some individuals uh, in the dual tasking area, Nora Fritz, um, who's very interested in that area, certainly wants to look at exploring that. I think that's a great path to go
1: down. And, Deb, for the study you were talking about, what stage of Huntington's disease were your participants?
2: In both of our studies um, with the video gaming, with the dance dance revolution, they tended to be in early to moderate, but we allowed people in as long as they could walk. We did let people in mm-hmm. moving into later than some studies would. We didn't narrow it down to just early stage disease. Mm-hmm. But we had people that were uh, thought they were perceive themselves to be asymptomatic.
1: Yeah, really interesting. We have two more action statements um, that I want to make sure that we get to. So the fifth one was looking at the effectiveness of postural control training.
0: Um, Yes, postural control is an area um, where you see there is there can be many impairments um, particularly in the beginning earlier stages you just maybe note that their posture just in general they have more of a slouch type posture when they're and even you see it sitting you see it at standing Um, and at those earlier stages uh, what we find and this is based mostly on expert opinion um, is that they can benefit from maybe doing some core strengthening exercises and postural Exercises where you're really working on maintaining a nice, a nice alignment. Um, as the disease progresses then, um, because they have, you know, because of the movements that they're having, um, they tend to have difficulty, particularly like sitting, say in a chair, because their movements are causing them to like actually um, to slip out of the chair. Um, And it's just very and you know, they're moving in all directions. So it's hard for them to maintain that seated position. Um, So that is when, um, you know, it becomes important to maybe use like different types of equipment to help them um, with getting like good, good seated posture um, it may be using like pillows or wedges or things and a seat belt when they're in a wheelchair or, um, mm-hmm. you know, later, more advanced. There are actually like very specific chairs, one of which is called the Broda chair. Mm-hmm. That um, It really um, helps to keep the person from sliding out of the chair mm-hmm. and just makes them more comfortable. And they actually, you know, will... Tend to once you get them in a good position, then they tend to actually have less chorea and not move around as much.
2: Mm-hmm. Actually, the review had pretty, as you noted, probably limited evidence, but a lot of expert agreement with the points that Ann was making, specifically on the equipment. There was a study that looked at trying to train postural control and use force plate center of mass. And didn't find any improvement,
1: Hmm.
2: Hmm. Um, but it's pretty limited amount of studies done in that area.
1: I appreciated, you know, that you guys were also giving, you know, real life equipment recommendations, and the the part about being it's a consensus among experts stood out to me because I think in other you know, systematic reviews, you're limited to what the research is saying. And it's its nice to really hear from the clinicians who have the patient in front of them, who have been trying things, you know, who are following them, who can kind of see it in, in front of their own eyes about what's working, what's not working. And last but not least, I want to get to your sixth action item on the role of physical therapy and ADL seating and positioning in the later stages. Uh, which we've certainly touched on kind of throughout these other sections, but is there, you know, anything else that you want to make sure we know that you guys have learned?
2: I think a take home is that the expert consensus is that we really do need to be involved in this area, that there are some unique positioning strategies such as the Broda chair that Ann mentioned that work in this um, population they do have unique challenges and and as experts we've seen that the need for bed railings because otherwise they fall out of bed and we've actually had people with uh, head injuries from hitting bedside tables Mm -hmm. falling out of bed because of the chorea and those things so um, all of those are considerations that um, may not be well taken in institutions but again just and we all know the challenges here as researchers, but as clinicians, we take care of people right through the moderate and late stages. And there's a real need to better look at and research effective treatment strategies in those stages.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, towards the end of the paper, I again, I really appreciated how you have outlined some steps that clinicians can take um, that. In order to get more expertise or feel more comfortable um, starting to treat a patient with Huntingtons. Are there any other resources online um, that you guys can point to for our listeners to go to if they had other questions or um, just wanted to get some more general background information on Huntington's disease?
0: Well, we always recommend there's a series um, that was actually it's a joint um endeavor between the Huntington's uh, disease society of America and the, um, America, uh, the Academy of neurologic PT. Um, but we have a series, there's five different uh, modules that are online that you can access free, um, from the learning center at the APTA. Um, and they are about all different topics, um, on, uh, you know, on Huntington's, the care of Huntington's disease. Um, And Deb and I were involved. Lori Quinn uh, did one of the modules. And then uh, we had an occupational therapist, Teresa Berner, uh, from OSU were involved in that. Um, But they're free. And I always, that's one of the go-to Um, places I tell people if they're saying I don't really know how to, you know, work with this person with Huntington's.
1: Now it's fabulous. I've watched it myself, and I learned a lot. So I've really appreciated the effort and the time that you guys put into that. And I know our listeners out there um, who've used it as a resource, I can only imagine that they feel the same. And we give a big thank you to the Huntington's
2: Disease Society of America
1: because they're the ones
2: who pay for the continuing ed credits. Um, And that's because they really want more therapists to become knowledgeable in this area and work with these individuals.
1: Well, we'll make sure that we put the link in our show notes. Um, Is there any way that someone could get linked up with a mentor or if they have a a question, how do they kind of get more of that one-on-one guidance that they may need?
2: I don't think we have a formal system for that, but certainly I know that uh, Lori, Nora, and myself are always happy to work with individuals. Um, I ha- would assume that if anyone contacted either the Huntington's Disease Society of America, the Huntington Study Group, or even the um, Academy of neurologic physical therapy that they would probably refer them to any of us or other therapists that specialize in that area.
1: Fabulous. Well, make sure to put both of your contact information along with Lori and Nora's contact information in our show notes so that people can reach out directly. Well, Ann and Deb, this has been great to be able to speak with you both. Congrats again um, to you and your team and the consensus of all of your experts. It's a lot of work to put a paper like this together, um, but it's so invaluable to our field and to kind of keep moving forward the treatment we have for people with Huntington's disease. We always like to end our show talking a little bit about what you guys like to do when you're not working in your clinics.
2: Well, I'll go first. Um, I really like to hike and go boating. And I'll go on pretty much any boat that's out there. And I used to own m- multiple types of boats, but we're, we're trying to streamline our boats right now. But That's how I like to spend my time.
1: Fabulous. And what about you, Anne?
0: Um, I do like to hike. Um, and particularly, I like to climb mountains. So my husband and I have traveled, we've done Machu Picchu, we climbed Kilimanjaro. We do a lot of hiking. We did some hiking in the Grand Canyons, um, in Utah. I mean, we just, love, we just love any kind of mountains.
1: Well, thanks again for having the time to talk with us. And it sounds like you may have other study results to share with us in the future. So we'd love to have you back. Thanks. We hope so. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests today, Anne Kluse and Deb Pegelmeier. This podcast was produced by the ANPT, Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group, and edited by Parm Padgett and Sarah Crandall. And also thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing our music. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And if you enjoyed our podcast today, please be sure to share it with a friend. That sounds like a blooper. Is that right, you guys?
2: Technically, you messed up.
1: This is why. This is why it's so hard. You're like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. There's like there's nothing different.
2: (laughs) You can give us any title, President, Top Honcho. Sorry, you guys. I got to turn off the chat. He's, well, tearing the house apart multiple warnings go away be quiet
1: well parm's husband has definitely made the bloopers a few times like playing guitar fixing the house i'm like what's the banging she's like it's jeff well done well done